Before we start this episode of Conversations with Kenyatta, I'm excited to tell you about my new partnership with Audible. Listeners can go to www.audibletrial.com backslash Kenyatta to receive a free 30-day trial. Audible is a wonderful resource with audiobooks for every reader. It even has titles from authors that have been on my podcast, such as Dr. Dan Bouts' Democracy's Data and Gail Lukasik's White Like Her. And please note that this is an affiliate link. So I may receive a commission with no cost to you, just a fee trial with so many wonderful titles. And I love to read. But with that, here's this week's episode of Conversations with Kenyatta. Welcome to episode 53 of Conversations with Kenyatta. Today's guest is Mark A. Whitling. He's the owner of Ancestry Introductions, LLC, and he's a full-time professional genealogist with more than 25 years of research experience. He holds a certified genealogy credential from the Board for Certified Genealogists. In addition, he teaches forensic genealogy at the University of New Haven. Mark also serves as the Board of APG, along with me as past president. And you can learn more about Mark's impressive career in our show notes for Conversations with Kenyatta. Well, welcome, Mark, to Conversations with Kenyatta. I'm excited to learn more about you. I know we spoke at the APG uh, board meeting in January, but I'm excited to have you tell me how you got started in genealogy. This is one of my favorite questions for people. Well, thank you, Kenyatta, for having me. I'm really excited to be here. I have my mother to thank for getting me started in genealogy. Um, When I was 10 years old, she sat me down and showed me some old papers she found that were correspondence in between her grandmother and her grandmother's cousin about their goal of joining the Daughters of the American Revolution. And it traced part of our family tree, not only back to the revolution, but back to the immigrant ancestor on one of our lines uh, in the 1600s. And the last name of that ancestor was my middle name. And uh, my my mother also let me know that uh, that name had come from her favorite grandfather that she was very close to. So I grew up sort of with that story of her grandfather, the name being passed down. I learned about this uh, earlier family history when I was 10. And then she would also tell me stories about another grandmother of hers that uh, lived on a, a farm that my mother would spend a lot of time at as a child. And she just she just had such wonderful, blissful memories and stories about her grandmother's farm and uh, that apparently an ancestor on that side had built a farm back in the 1800s. And I was completely enamored by not only the stories, but the sense of fondness with which my mother told these mm-hmm. stories. And even aside from that, I grew up in a very small town in northern New York. It was called Sackett's Harbor. It was known for uh, its role in the War of 1812. The British invaded twice, and the uh, villagers repelled the British twice. And I grew up playing on the battlefield, which was a short walk from my house. The cannons are still there that were used uh, by the villagers to repel the British. And my sister and I used to just jump around and play on them as kids. And so I was surrounded by history. I was hearing all of these stories, and when I was 10 and my mother showed me those those papers, it just all clicked. And I took those papers home that night, spread them out on my bedroom floor, and I created my first genealogical chart, trying to connect all of those names. <laughs> and I've been building that chart and that tree ever since. <laughs> 
That's fascinating. I love that story because there's so many nuggets in there. Yeah. With your mom sharing these letters and you taking those letters and what that meant to you and you and your sister playing around with these cannons from War of 1812 in the small town. Yeah. It's just like there's so many different pieces of that. That's such a great, great story. Hopefully you've shared that story multiple times with people and it's written down somewhere because I think it's one of the of the top five fascinating ones I've heard of people getting started <laughs> in genealogy. Yeah, because usually, you know, it's like, oh, I was just thinking about this or doing something, you know, at some point <laughs> someone told me something or, you know, for me, it was with my boyfriend's and my ex-boyfriend's family. So it wasn't even my own uh -huh. family. So I think we all have uh -huh. a different entry point into genealogy. Absolutely. And that's what makes the stories interesting. So. Exactly. Exactly. So with this family history, with the DAR and all of that stuff, is that the most interesting discovery? that you had in your family tree with this immigrant ancestor, or do you have other little nuggets to share? Oh, that's a good question. You know, when I, I think if you were to ask me this question at different points in my genealogical career, you would get a different answer from me. So back when I was 10, I would have been all about seeing how far back I could get those family lines. And that's what interested me was, you know, am I back to the 1700s, the 1600s, the 1500s? collecting those names and dates. And that started going away for me around about 10 years into that work when I discovered I had an ancestor who was a lighthouse keeper. Mm. And I had moved to um, Washington, D.C. right after college, and I was uh, close to the National Archives. And lighthouse records are federal records. So his log books are there. And I got to read 16 years worth of his daily entries. And this is late 1800s. So it was businessy, those records, but it was also very personal. There wasn't, a, you know, he was on, a, he was alone on an island. So he basically wrote what he wanted, you know, mm -hmm. after he had logged whatever the weather was that day or what ship had crashed. <laughs> I got a sense of his personality. I was amazed. I, I, I learned what his family life was like. I learned minute details, like what his favorite flower was, what, uh, mm -hmm what his chores were like on the island. Uh, I, I read his entry when his son was born and how proud he was, um, how upset he got one day when someone brought a dog on the island when his son was still an infant and the dog went after the, after the child. You know, I mean, you could just see this coming through in the writing. I could uh, read how upset he was when his mother died, how proud he was of his work at the island um, because he really turned it into sort of a destination Mm -hmm. um, where people from from the area wanted to visit. He liked giving tours. He liked um, beautifying the island uh, and and having all different sorts of uh, animal vis animals of his own there that, that made it a, really like a park almost for people. That, that story really, really excited me. And I started from there on out trying to develop similar stories for other ancestors of mine. And I eventually found that I had an ancestor who had fought in that village I just told you about and helped repel the British from taking wow. it over the first time in 1812. <laughs> so that was, that was really exciting. But I would say that even beyond that, my interests have changed in more recent years. So I've, I've moved from collecting names and dates to, you know, those interesting stories to now I'm really kind of moved by those moments in my genealogical work where I'm helping people resolve a question or a situation they've had their whole life. I've helped close relatives um, figure out who their parents are. Mm -hmm. um, and I've helped people understand why situations in their family life 
were the way they were, you know, when they were growing up or, or why the dynamics were the way they were. I'm, I'm a big believer that we not only inherit genes, we inherit behavioral patterns, mm-hmm. talents, biases. And, you know, when I was in college, I, I, I uh, as part of my sociology major, I took a course in uh, what was called family systems. And it's primarily used in, in psychology, but it's, it's essentially an analysis of, of the roles that people and families get put into mm-hmm. um, and how those dynamics play out. And you can apply that in, in a genealogical sense and see how behaviors get passed down from generation to generation. For example, I have one part of my family tree where I can trace seven generations in a row mm-hmm. of divorce or absent parents. Mm, wow. In, in that same line, I can, I can trace inherited musical talent. In another line, I can trace very loving relationships um, and emphasis on education as a value that's transmitted generation to generation. Um, so you, you, you start to see how the dynamics that you experience in your own family, in your own childhood, became the way they, they were. And I think that that's really illuminating and fascinating. And it makes genealogy meaningful for people in a way that just looking at a chart on a wall does not. That's an excellent point. And it's so interesting because as you were sharing that, I was thinking about my own family tree, of course, and things that I do for clients. But, you know, that brings about the question as a follow-up is that, you know, maybe genealogists should study sociology so they Mm. can actually do what you do. Because I feel like when people come to me or email me, it is with a burning question about Mm -hmm. something in their family, their parent. Uh, They were adopted, but it's almost as if they want this sense of identity and belonging, and they want more than just that name, date, or place. They want to know about the person. They want to know why this thing happened. And it's difficult. I don't have a degree in (laughs) sociology, so it's difficult for me to do that. But I think that brings such a rich experience for the genealogist and for the client, in my opinion. Yeah, I I agree. And, you know, I think one of the, the... Potential applications of sociology to genealogy is the fact that sociology is really about looking at um, social structures and how they come about, and that includes people's beliefs mm-hmm. and uh, the uh, the way that that social groups um, interact with one another as a result, and the members of those groups interact with each other. There's a principle in sociology that uh, called reification, which which means that we tend to accept situations as inherently existing in and of themselves. Mm-hmm. So we do this this way because that's the way we've always done it. We believe this because that's what's always been believed. Well, no, people have, have decided to do things that way. They've decided to believe things a certain way. And you can figure out when that happened and why they decided to do that. And what that does is it helps you step outside of those uh, beliefs and those structures and start critically evaluating them. And that kind of objectivity is really important in genealogy because we tend to apply our own values to the lives of our ancestors. It's called presentism. And when you realize you need to step outside your own beliefs and your own social structures and think about what was happening in that ancestor's time and why, you can start doing better storytelling you can develop better understanding of of what your ancestors' lives were like. So there's certainly some interdisciplinary, I think, you know, interaction there, some some things to explore for genealogists. 
I totally agree. I think it would make a great presentation and or APG article. Hint, hint. <laughs> <laughs> Let me add that to the list. Okay, I know. You're like, I already have a Thanks, list. Kenyatta. <laughs> I mean, I'm fascinated by it. I think everyone else would be too. Oh, good. Um, I have a co-author now. Yeah. Oh, oh well, I didn't sign up for that now. <laughs> just the idea. I just threw it out there. Um, but you also have a Master of Library Science. So tell me about that and uh, what you know, how you got interested in that particular field. Oh, that's, you know, I have genealogy to thank for that. Honestly, I do. And my mother. In that little town that I was in, our library was was uh, in this little room off the church, stained glass windows. We'd walk in there late afternoon, sun is streaming through the windows under the books. I mean, it was like a religious experience going to the library, you know. Um, but I just loved going to the library as a ki- as I was a kid when I was a kid, and when I eventually became interested in genealogy, naturally I started looking for the local history books mm-hmm. and the genealogy books because I wanted to see if these people I was hearing about and learning about were in there because I wanted more of their stories, and that just really snowballed. Um, by the time I uh, was in college, uh, I I had uh, picked up a job working in a library to pay my way through college partly. And at the end of those four years, the uh, person who um, managed me said, you know, you're pretty good at this. Have you ever thought about a career in libraries? And I remember I laughed. I laughed because I did not see that for myself. I ended up getting a job in the library of the National National Geographic in Washington, D.C. a couple of years later. And uh, Again, a person I was working for there said, have you considered a master's in library science going to library school because you're pretty good at this? And I'm thinking, yeah, maybe at this point, you know, because I'm starting to make some money from it and it's actually turning into a career. So I ended up writing to the woman I worked for back in college who had originally suggested it. And she wrote me a letter of recommendation into library school. I got in and uh, it really kind of launched my career for the next couple of decades because I ended up uh, moving up to the Boston area and taking a job with a company called EBSCO, which creates uh, scholarly research databases, full text databases for libraries, for universities. Um, And sort of this whole arc really taught me um, principles of information organization and retrieval, which are essential skills when you are trying to find those details about your family, right? So it made me a better searcher on Ancestry, a better searcher on Family Search, a better searcher in person when I was at Archives. Mm -hmm. Um, It it was really just sort of this synergistic interaction between libraries and my genealogy interest my whole life. So they they kind of were, you know, destined to be together, I guess, in in my life. (laughs) (laughs) So then when did you decide you wanted to become a professional genealogist? Like, when did that happen? A good question. You know, I, I really sort of considered myself um, professional really right after college. I was in Washington, D.C. I was right next to the National Archives, the Daughters of the American Revolutionary, uh, Revolution Library, the Library of Congress, and I was already doing research for myself. And I thought, well, I'm here. I could help other people do the same thing. So why don't I advertise my services? And so from my early 20s, I was uh, taking part-time client jobs in Washington, D.C., um, outside of my uh, my 9-to-5 job, mm-hmm. nights, weekends, uh, doing research for, research for folks. 
when I left uh, DC, I didn't have as much opportunity uh, at that. And so I really just sort of did stuff uh, word of mouth for people. I'm around my full-time job in the software industry up here in Boston. Um, But after a few years in the software industry, I realized I was, I was meeting other people's definitions of success, you know, climbing that corporate ladder. I had a wonderful uh, uh, salary, you know, with a, with a nice uh, director title um, at this company, but I was miserable. I was commuting four hours a day. I didn't have time for genealogy, <laughs> um, you know, to do what I wanted to. And I just had this moment where I stepped back and I said, I'm doing whatever, what everyone else expects of me to be successful, but I'm not doing what makes me happy. And at that point, I said, I'm going to step away from this and I'm going to chart my path to doing what I want to do and makes me happy. And that was genealogy. And so it was around 2015 that I set that intention and I methodically mapped out what my path was going to be. I joined the Association of Professional Genealogists. Um, I started attending conferences. I joined my local chapter of that organization and met others who were uh, walking that same path. Mm-hmm. I listened to podcasts um, <laughs> that described how other people had become professionals uh, with the intention of going full time, right. um, whereas I was part time before. And in 2017, I eventually got to the point where I was able to leave that software job and I went full time and I had not looked back. And I, I never work a day because what I do is fun. Right, right. <laughs> so yeah. I made the right choice. Yeah, I think that's an important point to make um, around success, right? And what yeah. other people define as success. Um, yeah. You can do all the things that people want to do um, that or that you should do, want you to do and think you should do. And I was having this conversation. I went home for Mother's Day with my two college friends. They both went into automotive. And I was like, I'm never going to do that, right? So I'm in Detroit. We're talking. And they were like, I'm like, yeah, I don't know. You know, I'm talking about how it is to be a professional genealogist, you know, all the bills and whatnot, get clients and whatnot. And one of my friends just said to me, she says, I'm only there for the health insurance and I hate my job. And I was like, oh God. (laughs) (laughs) I did not want to be back (laughs) in that seat. You know what I'm saying? So it was just so interesting. Um, And they have kids and stuff like like that. So it's not as easy just to say to someone, what do you want to do? What are you passionate about? Why don't you do that? You know? Yeah, Yeah, it seems nice. Uh, We both have done that. Uh, We both did it actually in the same year. I did mine in 2017 as well. Uh, December Mm -hmm. 20th, 2017 to be exact. The day I was emancipated, as I like to say. So um, what made you decide to become a certified genealogist? Mm, Well, certified genealogist, of course, is a it's a credential that the Board for Certification of Genealogists awards to folks who meet their standards. And they have actually published over 90 standards in the areas of research, reasoning and writing. And what you do is you have to submit a portfolio of your best work that shows you're capable of meeting those standards. and they judge that portfolio, and if and if it passes, then then you earn that credential. I liked the idea of meeting that challenge. Mm. I wanted to know that I could meet the standards, and then I wanted others to know that my work met those standards, that they could rely on my work, that my work was credible, because it was part of it was part of me building credibility for my business. Right. I, I wanted that credential so that my my business would would be successful. So it was for a very practical reason in that sense. Uh, you know, like like a lot of other professions, when you earn a credential, you can usually command a higher pay rate. 
you have access to opportunities that others don't, who don't carry a credential. The same is true in genealogy. And so I wanted uh, to have that credential for, for all of those reasons. Your specialties, because you, you do a lot of stuff, you've built your business based on, on some of the things I've um, got from your bio, but mm-hmm. um, include uh, New York, New England, mm-hmm. uh, forensic services such as air searching. Like, mm-hmm. how did you decide what you were going to specialize in? I mean, I think in genealogy, you start out the gate doing everything, right? Getting to know all the records, but at some point in our mm-hmm. careers, we decide I'm going to focus on this. So when, what made you decide to focus on these areas? Sure. So the, the interest in specialization in, in New York and New England were really just outgrowths of my own ancestry. That's where my roots are. Mm. So I was familiar with those areas uh, and with those records. And I, I felt that those would be strong suits of mine if I were to offer research in those areas to others. And so I do that. And that includes research for Revolutionary War um, or other other major events, uh, you know, Mayflower ancestry, that sort of thing. Um, in my foray into forensic gene- genealogy really was, at, at the beginning, a practical matter. <laughs> Again, I was trying to succeed full-time, and I went to the uh, APG's Professional Management Conference in 2016. It was my first one. And I attended a presentation about forensic genealogy and learned that first of all, forensic genealogy is the application of genealogy in uh, in a case that has legal implications, um, and so that meant anything from air searching to military repatriation to nowadays, uh, you know, helping uh, law enforcement identify whose DNA they've got right. um, from a particular scene. But what I learned was you could earn that higher rate. <laughs> the work commands that higher pay rate. And I needed that at that point in my career. And so I said, well, I am going to, I'm going to see if I can do that. And once I jumped in, I realized I was really, really taken with the work. It opened up a, a new way of doing genealogy, a new way of applying those skills that I wasn't used to, um, that I'd never encountered before. And I enjoyed the different type of rigor that is demanded in those areas of, of genealogical work. Mm-hmm. And how do clients find you? I mean, I know you have a website and, and everything and the directory mm-hmm. and all of that, but are, is there anything that you do differently or you recommend to genealogy genealogists, excuse me, as far as kind of marketing themselves, especially in uh, what you do with forensic genealogy? You know, I think marketing is so difficult. I have not mastered it. I know very few people who have mastered it, regardless of the business that they're in. Um, but I, I, I see that the topic of marketing come up all the time in genealogy circles, and some people do it very well, and others, like me, are still trying to, to figure out, you know, find that magic button. But it is a continual effort, and I would just encourage anyone who is still trying to find their way uh, that. What I heard when I started was at least the first two years of a business, most of your time is spent on marketing. So if that's what you're finding yourself doing, don't be discouraged. Um, But eventually you start finding what you like to do, and then you figure out where those people are that want what you like to do. And you just have to figure out how to meet them where they are. If it's attorneys, you might have to visit an attorney's office or send them a really nice you know, brochure or a letter that says, hey, I, I do X, Y, and Z. For people who are interested in their own personal family history in a particular region of the country, for example, well, you might have to go attend a conference so you can start meeting those people face-to-face, get your name out there. 
um, and become known in those circles. So that's what I do. You know, like you pointed out, I do offer a broad variety of services. I, I'm a bit of a an odd duck in the genealogy world, I think, in that sense, because some of the advice out there is you need to find your niche. You need to find your specialty. Right, right. I don't want to have a niche or a specialty. I like having lots of different kinds of genealogical puzzles to solve. Mm -hmm. And I also think it makes good business sense for me because when I don't necessarily have, you know, uh, 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 individuals coming to me with research questions, I might have uh, a military repatriation case to work on. Or in summers, I teach at the University of New Haven. So, you know, I know that I have that there. Part of the challenge of running your own full-time business is making sure you've got that constant flow. Right. of clients and business coming in. And for me, diversifying my client base is how I make sure that that happens. It's just like a portfolio for your retirement. You know, you don't invest in one stock, you invest in lots so that one is down, another one might be up and things even out. Right. Yeah. 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 You have to, I, I agree with that wholeheartedly. You have to have a lot of different things that you offer. Mm -hmm. Um, because you're not, you're not going to, you make, at least for me, I get folks wanting me to help them out, but they don't necessarily have the funds. So being able to be a coach or do narratives for people or do research or work on television stuff helps to kind of diversify everything. And even for someone like myself who has been on television, <laughs> marketing is still an issue even for me. So, <laughs> so know that you're not alone, anyone listening, but I want to get into mentorship. Because being a mentor seems very important to you and with men, uh, being a mentor and a mentee. Uh, so what do you think makes a good mentor? Because I just know it's hard to find. Yeah. So I think that, first of all, an openness to sharing your experience and your time are are essential. In genealogy, in the professional genealogy world, it's a very small world. We pretty much all end up knowing each other. Um, you see the same faces at conferences. Um, there can be a sense that if you share your business secrets, that you might be losing out. Basically, you're training your competition. But I think that there's another way to look at that, which is, you know, that saying that a rising tide lifts all ships. When we help each other do better, genealogy as a discipline does better. And that means people become more confident in what we do as a group, and we all start getting more business. So that's good, right? Mm -hmm. So be willing, be open to sharing what you what you have to offer and and be looking for people who have an interest and a willingness to learn from you. Mm -hmm. Because I think being a good uh mentor is only half of the equation. I think you also have to be a good mentee. Mm -hmm. So when you're starting out as a genealogist, you, a lot of us are self-trained. We become Hobbyists, that's, how, that's our first foot in the doorstep for genealogy. And we don't necessarily know what we don't know. But if you want a mentor, you can't expect that you're just going to show up on their doorstep and say, hey, I want to be like you. And they're going to drop everything and teach you what, you, know, what you need to know. You need to do some preparation. You, know, right. you need to get yourself involved um, in professional circles, in the materials that are going to help you understand the area that you want to, to work in. And come with educated questions, come with uh, some goals that are defined so that your mentor has something to latch onto and to understand exactly what it is you need from them. So I think if you have all of those ingredients together, then you have the potential for a successful mentor-mentee relationship. 
And so you developed um, the peer mentor program at the mm-hmm. APG New England chapter. Um, tell us a little bit about that program. Sure. So that was really an outgrowth of uh, an event in, in New England called uh, New England Regional Genealogical Consortium Conference, which happens every couple of years. And our chapter had a booth there in 2019. And we had over 30 new members sign up at that conference, which was huge. Wow. Yeah. And a lot of those folks were brand spanking new to being professionals. Mm-hmm. And it was abundantly clear to those of us who were already established in the group that we needed to support these new members coming in. Mm-hmm. And so uh, some of us got together and hatched this idea of a mentor program. And so what happened was we developed a system where essentially we put out a list of topics uh, in genealogy, whether it was genetic genealogy or deed work or, or uh, military research, French Canadian genealogy, that sort of thing, and said, is anyone willing to offer their expertise in this area? And so we developed a list of our members who had skills in those areas. And then we sort of banked those. We had this ready bank of topics and mentors teed up. And then we created a an intake system whereby if someone wanted mentorship in those areas, they could contact uh, a mentorship coordinator, which was me at the time. Mm-hmm. And I would pair them up with that mentor based on their questions, their area of areas of interest. And we constrained the, the time so that it wasn't too much of a, a commitment on either side. We asked that people, that the mentors and mentees commit to meeting at least three times for 30 minutes over the course of three months. Okay. Um, and the feedback was very positive. The program is still going on. That's great. And have you seen that program adopted by other APG chapters by any chance? Uh, I'm not sure if anyone created a mentor mentoring program specifically based off of our chapters program, but I know that it's a big topic okay. in APG uh, chapters generally. I think it's an important area that is always uh Right for more work. Yeah. Some APG members are isolated geographically and it's difficult for them to network with others. You know, yeah. mentoring can happen over Zoom, it can happen over the phone or by email. So it, it can be a great way for connecting those members. Yeah, I think it's important. I mean, you know, even just in business, just having like mentor me finding mentors across any area that I work in, right? I think also being an entrepreneur, having a mentor or a business person in your life to help you. And I've been advised to get someone that's not in genealogy, actually, mm-hmm. for business mm-hmm. because they come at it with a different perspective because we're so knee deep into our stuff as genealogists. They look at it and say, well, hey, why don't you do this instead of you know the way you're structuring your pricing or anything like that? So I think it's important mm-hmm. to look outside as well. Absolutely. But let's get into your teaching. So you Mm -hmm. mentioned that you teach in the summer at the University of New Haven. And so you develop and teach the genealogy principles and methods course Mm -hmm. that is in the forensic genetic genealogy graduate program. I had to make sure I got that right. (laughs) Um, So tell us about this course, how the opportunity came about. I mean, this is just very exciting for me. Sure. So uh, University of New Haven uh, their forensic sciences department is one of the top rank in the world, and I had no idea about that until I actually joined the program. What happened was in uh, the tail end of 2020, 
I was the vice president in charge of programming for APG's Forensic Genealogy Special Interest Group. It was a group of about 150 people that met every month um, around topics in forensic genealogy. And I heard that University of New Haven was developing this program, and I invited the director, uh, Dr. Claire Glynn, who created the program, to come on and just tell our group about it, um, because I expected there'd be some members who would be interested. So she came on and gave a short presentation, and one of the uh, members said, hey, can you tell us who the instructors are for this program? And she said, well, you know, she named the, the, the instructors for a couple. Um, and then she said, but I'm looking for someone for the genetic uh, principles and methods course. And I thought to myself, well, I could do that. You know, I have the experience to, to at least help other people be competent <laughs> in, in genealogy, make sure that they at least are covering the right stuff. So afterwards, I just I just shot her an email and I said, you know, I, I might be able to help you with that. So uh, long story short, I interviewed with her and uh, she hired me. And um, that's sort of when the panic set in <laughs> because I had about three months to put together from scratch a six-week course <laughs> to genealogy. Um, so that's how, I, that's how the opportunity came around. But the program is just fantastic. It's a, a graduate program in which people earn a certificate mm-hmm. in forensic genetic genealogy. The, cor- the program is fully online, so you can take it from anywhere in the world. It's asynchronous. so. Uh, you can take the content at your own pace. However, it's scheduled, so you have certain things due at certain due dates, which don't change. About half of the people who take the course are genealogists or or people who want to become genetic genealogists, and they're interested in helping law enforcement figure out whose DNA, like I said, they've got um, right. from a particular scene. So, And the other half are members of law enforcement or forensic lab uh, workers who want to add genealogical skills to their to their toolbox because they can solve more cases that way. And the caliber of the students in this program are is really impressive. I've just been so impressed every every year that I've been in the program with the dedication of people who come through this program. My course is the third in the program. So in the first course, uh, Dr. Glenn teaches students how DNA is collected at the scene, for example, and then processed in the lab. In the second course, another professor teaches how to run that DNA essentially through uh, genealogical tools like GEDmatch um, to start coming up with matches, uh, relatives of those of uh, the person who, from whom that DNA came. And then in my course, I really teach people how to attach a name to that DNA, and which, of course, you can only do through sound genealogical work in records that help you prove identities and relationships. And so that's my part of the program. And then afterwards, the uh, students go through a practicum Mm -hmm. where they apply everything they've learned in a real, real world setting. And then at the end, they earn their, their certificate. That's very fascinating. So it makes me wonder how many other kind of forensic genetic genealogy <laughs> programs there are at other institutions, um, because it's, mm-hmm. as you're describing it, it seems so logical to go through that, you know, those three courses and then apply that at the end. And it would be needed, you know, even though your certificate is online, it seemed like it would be needed by millions of people, you know what I mean? As they work in this area and a lot of genealogists look to get uh, into the area a little bit more. Um, The next question I have for you though, is something I noticed in your bio and I had never heard of this organization. So I was immediately like, 
what is this? I need to know everything. But so what is the Association of Genealogy Educators, excuse me, and schools or ages as it's called? Um, And then how did you even get involved in this thing? Yeah, so ages is is a fairly new organization, and its mission is to establish genealogy as a recognized academic discipline in higher education. Mm. And the goal is to do that by helping people create curriculum, to train educators, and to begin developing a body of academic research about genealogy as a discipline, just like a lot of other disciplines have, you know, in all three of those areas. So I got involved in that organization because, as I said, the panic set in when I got the, the offer to, to develop the course for University of New Haven. I, I knew genealogy backwards and forwards, but I hadn't actually developed lessons right. for people. And I, I took this very, very seriously. I, I did not want to teach just a, a high-level survey course. I wanted to teach a preparation course because I knew the stakes of the work that people were going to have to do coming out of the program overall. And I wanted their work to stand up to scrutiny and be defensible, which meant I wanted them to, for example, be able to meet the standards, professional standards set forth by the board for certification of genealogists or know what they were and be, and be able to, to uh, competently, you know, uh, aspire to them. But when I started uh, trying to develop the course, I, I couldn't find any guide rails out there for what ought to go into that kind of course. Mm-hmm. I couldn't find any curriculum models. And I wanted to make, I wanted feedback on what I needed to include that I hadn't thought to include. Okay. And I couldn't get it. Right. So what I had to rely on was my own education through institutes, conferences, certificate programs I had gone through, and my own experience and just thinking, well, what would someone need to know and and be able to do by the end of this course? And so I developed it essentially on my own based on that background. But I thought to myself, it should not be this hard because there are so many of us in genealogy who do education. Mm -hmm. And if we could all just kind of write down how we do it, (laughs) that would make it easier for the next person who has to come up with a course within three months, you know? So I decided to join that organization and I chair its curriculum uh, and program development committee. Mm. And our goal is to start um, sort of developing and publishing some of those, those guide rails for people, those uh, roadmaps really Mm -hmm. for how you could stand up. Um, a curriculum or a course or a program at a, at, an, at another uh, educational institution, and my work in my work there, I've learned that there are actually many many uh, genealogical courses and degree programs out there already around the world. It's just we haven't been talking to one another. Right. So this organization is is a sort of a central hub for us to start doing that, and I'm excited to see where where it goes. That's so interesting. So how many, roughly how many members do you guys have right now? Oh, good question. And, and I honestly can't tell you. I, I think it's in the dozens and, and they're institutional as okay. well as individual members. So institutions could represent lots of educators. Got it. Okay. Uh, yeah. And so you don't have, do you have to be a professor to join the organization or as an individual genealogist, can you join like someone like a professional? It's really open to people who are interested in education of genealogists. So you might be a person who puts together courses, you know, uh, Mm -hmm. 
in, in a variety of settings. But the goal of the organization, as I said, is to establish genealogy as an academic discipline in higher education. So we don't focus, for example, on K through 12 at the moment. Mm -hmm. um, it's really, uh, you know, college. Mm -hmm. College and up. Interesting. So what immediately comes to mind for me is, as folks know, I've been attending a university setting slavery conference for a mm -hmm. while mm -hmm. and um, participated before uh, as an attendee and also uh, interviewing someone or moderator, but it seems like that would be a great place or a potential partnership in my mind, mm -hmm. because that's where I get a lot of my work with institutions mm -hmm. that are looking to do descendant work like UVA mm -hmm. has done or University of Mississippi or Washington and Lee. So I think those two organizations or maybe someone attending the conference or something like that, that seems to be to me a very easy kind of partnership to both grow your organization and then help as these institutions are maybe looking at developing this type of curriculum. And one thing I'll give you a great example for you and then I'll move on, but this is just making me think about it. A couple of years ago, so it must've been pre-pandemic, I think, you know, someone came up to me and said, do you know, gosh, it was like basically a PhD, like a postdoc student who has a, who's a professional genealogist, basically because they mm -hmm. wanted that. And the profile was so kind of narrow. I was like, I can't even think of anyone in my circle, but this will be perfect because now you can, you know, you two can work together. So anyway, that was, that just popped in my head and I'm excited you're part of the organization. I'm excited that you're into education and developing curriculum. That's a little bit too rigid for myself, but I'm happy you're doing it. <laughs> so, <laughs> I could just talk all day about genealogy, but actually, like, right. No, thank you. Um, you know, another area uh, that you do that I do not do is that you uh, write peer-reviewed articles for genealogy journals. So I'm always interested in, you know, why genealogists kind of focus on this area or are interested in this area of writing. So tell me, you know, what sparked your interest? Oh, I think it was a variety of things. It was the challenge of having my work accepted and, and, and published, you know, the satisfaction of seeing my work in print, um, but also uh, marketing. Mm. So I certainly wanted others to know that, uh, you know, be able to have the chance to read my work, to know that it was peer reviewed and accepted for publication, but also just sort of a, a visceral desire to get the stories out about these ancestors that I have spent decades of my life researching. I want their stories known and told. Um, and who's going to do it right. except for me, you know, right. who, who else? So, so uh, peer reviewed journals are the, are the uh, venue for that. Um, okay. And, and that's, that's where I focus on publishing what I, what I do so far. And so most of your articles are about your relatives, about your family members, or are they about other projects you research on? So the peer-reviewed articles that I have written are about my own family so far. Okay. So I have one in the uh, New England Historic Genealogical Register, and I have, uh, if I can preview, I've got another one coming out uh, this year in the Mayflower Descendant. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. And what is the writing process like for those types of articles? Because I always think of this, when anyone comes on the podcast as a writer, I'm always digging into their writing process. Because mm. <laughs> I... Because I struggle with my own um, and it's, you know, everyone's different, but I feel like since these are so very structured, you'd have a very different kind of process. And then sort of how do you decide who you're going to pick for, you know, whatever journal? Every journal has its own 
selection standards and selection process, and they're usually published on the website or uh, in in the journal itself at some point during the year. So if you're ever interested in publishing, you can really just take a look at there and get a sense of what that journal's uh, interests are, and you quickly take some off the list, or you know some come up to the top of the list, and those become your focus. But it really depends on what you've decided to write about and how you've decided to write about it. Some journals like the National Genealogical Society Quarterly are very interested in taking articles that, that demonstrate methodology mm-hmm. or solve an interesting problem with, uh, with um, you know, novel record groups, that sort of thing. So if that's what you've done, then certainly send your article there. Other journals like uh, the Mayflower Descendant are obviously focused on, you know, problems having to do with, with Mayflower uh, descendants or people who lived in the areas uh, where, you know, Eastern Massachusetts, that sort of thing. Okay. So when I'm writing, I typically just sort of evaluate what what the story is that I've told. I don't start out trying to come up with a new article for a journal. It really just kind of is an outgrowth of my own personal research. And when I'm finished solving a problem, I think to myself, is that a good story to tell? Does that demonstrate, mm. you know, good genealogical reasoning or work with a particular record set or a certain type of methodology? Would this help people to see it? Would it help my business if people saw how I solved a complex problem? And, I, and don't, that's how I decide. I'm so fascinated by this because I've never even thought about actually writing mm-hmm. any type of uh, peer-reviewed articles. But now, somehow, you've made me pique my interest a little bit. <laughs> so that's odd. But, um, <laughs> but I, you know, I, I appreciate that you are getting your... And it's because you said you're getting your family stories out there. And I think one of the mm-hmm. things that I discussed with another genealogist on my podcast was how we do so much research, but yet we don't always publish the mm-hmm. research. And, you know, we try, I tell other people to do that, but I don't do it myself. And so that's one of the the things I've been thinking about. And she and I talked about for quite some time of how we can do that and Mm -hmm. ways in which we can take what we've done already and put it out there instead of starting something new, right? Um, Finding a new puzzle to put together or mystery to solve. Um, So my last question for you sort of is, you know, what's next for you? Do you have any big projects? You write no book, you start a podcast, anything? I mean, <laughs> full time. The podcast space is pretty well covered, Kenyatta. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> you can do something on Mayflower. Thank you for that, sir. <laughs> <laughs> I'll cover the APG articles, you cover the podcast. Yeah, you know, like I said, I teach every summer. I have started focusing a little bit more on trying to document my own family history for the relatives that have expressed interest. You know, I want them to be able to see the results of the work that I've done. Um, And that'll probably be private, you know, publication of of, of things just for my family. But beyond that, honestly, I'm open. I'm open to opportunity and just enjoying genealogy in all of its diversity, mm-hmm. which is what keeps me interested. Mm-hmm. Well, that's great. This has been fantastic. I've learned a lot. And I really just appreciate you coming on Conversations with Kenyatta because I think every genealogist I talk to has a different, provides a different perspective 
and being able to let people hear very different perspectives on how they got started, why people chose their specializations, and sort of even their own family stories, I hope really inspires our listeners. So thank you so much, Mark. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me on, Kenyatta. Conversations with Kenyatta is produced by Kenyatta D. Berry and Caitlin Owl and features Kenyatta D. Berry. The music for this episode was Good Vibe by Ketza. Follow Kenyatta on Instagram under the handle kenyatta.berry, on Facebook at facebook.com slash kenyattadb, and on Twitter at kenyattadb. You can also find more information on her book and upcoming events on her website at kenyattaberry.com. As a reminder, the views expressed by guests on Conversations with Kenyatta are their own and do not reflect the views of Kenyatta D. Barry.